Back at it again with another episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock. On today's episode, we're hitting a band that it's pretty hard to not have at least heard of. So, if you feel like the idiots are taking over and just want to say leave it alone, get ready for the decline because dinosaurs will die. That's right, everybody. We're doing no effects. Quick note before I begin. While writing this episode out, I got an email asking that I point out the difference between traditional skins and what they described as racist boneheads. I did make this distinction in our X-Ray Specs episode, but I felt it worth bringing up again. I'll also take this moment to again bring up the Don Letts film, The Story of Skinhead, which goes into greater detail on this than I am. Alright, on with the show. It seems like no effects have just always existed somewhere. I can't even remember the first time I heard them. They're definitely a band with a long roller coaster of a story, though. So, let's jump right in. For this story, we're going to jump back to 1981, when lead singer and bassist Fat Mike, real name Mike Burkett, was introduced to punk. Fat Mike is at a camp that is having a dance. The DJ, Joe Escalante of the Vandals, slips in Who Killed Bambi by the Sex Pistols and Beat on the Brat by the Ramones. He's instantly into this music and heads to Rhino Records after camp is finished to buy the Ramones' first album. At the age of 14, he goes to his first punk show with his childhood friend, Eddie Mocktinger, to see Killing Joke at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. He admits to being scared at this show, having two skinheads behind him blowing cigarette smoke down his neck while his friend goes out to slam dance. That's not enough to stop him, though, because he's back out the next week to see X. He briefly gets a punk band going called False Alarm, but it doesn't go far. From Fat Mike, let's look at guitarist Eric Melvin. He gets his introduction to punk through a counselor at a Jewish community center who shows him Adam and the Ants. Melvin likes the band so much he once painted a white stripe across his face like Adam Ant, only to be told by an older stranger that punk is junk. His real commitment to punk comes after experiencing a Bad Brain show. Moving on to our last original member, we have Eric Smelly Sandin on drums. The nickname Smelly comes from the horrible farts he would rip in the van while they were on tour. Smelly's introduction into punk came from a magazine article he read about the Dead Boys when he was younger. He would later find the Dead Boys cassette for young, loud, and snotty to swap meet and steal it. Bringing him further into punk music, a neighbor kid named Lee moves in and introduces him to bands such as Dead Kennedys, Red Cross, The Germs, and The Weirdos. Smelly also gets pretty heavy into drinking and drugs early on. His aunt and uncle dealt weed next door and he started stealing it from them. Eventually he started dealing and used $200 of the drug money to purchase a drum kit. Before meeting Fat Mike and joining No Effects, he is the drummer of another band called Caustic Cause, giving him the practice and experience to be the only No Effects member who could play his instrument well from the beginning. This makes up the original three members of NoFX, which would officially form in 1983. Now, if you're listening to this, hoping for an explanation of that name, it's not coming. It doesn't really mean anything, and the best I could find is they wanted something similar to the Boston band Negative Effects. They play their first show at the cafe to a crowd of no more than maybe ten people, where it's described as, Nobody clapped booed, or did anything, which is almost worse than having a crowd actively hate you. In 85, they go on a four-day tour that is booked by Eric Melvin. 
First stop on the tour was in Reno, opening for seven seconds. They were never actually confirmed for this, and Melvin just didn't tell Smelly or Fat Mike that detail. They did get to perform, though. They enjoy the short tour so much that they book another one immediately. Smelly quits the band for this tour, though, because his family's going on vacation, and they aren't going to reschedule tour dates to accommodate him. He's replaced by Scott Sellers. As the ultimate kicker here, the family vacation ended up getting cancelled. That same year, they released their debut album on Mystic Records, which, according to Fat Mike in a Nardwar interview, means nothing as Mystic would put out just about any band. The album showed Scott Sellers in the picture, but there was an asterisk that mentioned Smelly as the drummer. This really pissed Smelly off, but he had quit by this time already. Scott Sellers is out of the band after a short run and is replaced by Dave Allen for a few months before his death in a car wreck, where he rolls his pickup into a tree. He's replaced by Scott Aldel, who doesn't last too long before getting kicked out. Smelly finds out about this and gets back into the band. The original lineup are back together again. With the lineup back, they again go on tour in 1986. Before heading out on tour, they have a friend of theirs graffiti the van to say no effects, and they spray paint the tires to look like squares. It turns out that spray painting tires wasn't a great idea as it weakened the rubber and caused blowouts along the way. The graffiti also attracted the cops who search the van and find a billy club. Fat Mike takes the blame for it and is arrested for having a deadly weapon. They get him out and rush to the next gig to play with subculture. These are the guys who will eventually give Fat Mike his nickname, as he puts on some weight by the next time they see him. To go along with all of the fun of 86 that they're having, they release their next EP, So What If We're On Mystic. In 1987, they decide to add a second guitarist and bring in Dave Casillas, who finds them after seeing an ad for the audition. Now, Dave came with a problem. He was a heavy alcoholic. That's not to say the other members didn't drink, but Casillas outdid them all. In their autobiography, the other members of the band claim he would get so drunk he couldn't eat a cheeseburger, or that he had a problem stealing from houses they played at along the tour. Casillas denies all of this, but also admits that he doesn't remember a lot from then, so it might be possible. According to the band, his stealing was getting them blacklisted from places. They release another EP this year called The PMRC Can Suck On This. The cover originally featured an edited S&M photo, but was changed to a picture of Eric Melvin for the re-release. In 1988, they record their first studio album, Liberal Animation, with Brett Gerwitz. They do a decent amount of touring this year. During the tour, they take a break between towns to swim in a lake. Casillas dives off the dock and lands face-first on a stump. The hit is so bad he has to go to the hospital to get stitches. They then get to take a spot on a European tour after the adolescents have to drop out. Before heading off to Europe, they spend a few days in Baltimore because of a cancelled show, where they meet a young punk named DJ. He agrees to watch the van while they're gone and becomes a good friend for a while after. While in Europe, they tour with a band called Drowning Roses. The booker, Dolph, informs them after their first show that they were a lot better, but he must have been drunk the first time he heard them. Casillas gets in his face and says, fuck you, which Dolph responds by shoving him by his stitched up face, resulting in a fight that has to be broken up by the rest of the band. In reality, they were so bad at this time, they have Drowning Rose's headline instead of them. Both bands and all of their equipment had to fit in one van for the tour. It eventually gets to the drummer of Drowning Roses and he bails, leaving Smelly to play for both bands. 
They return to the States after this tour to find their van intact. DJ comes back to California with them, which will be the first step to his downfall. They make it back and play a welcome home show in Santa Barbara. After this, Casillas gets a call from the band informing him they want him out, and he agrees. Now, there is a lot in the band's autobiography about Smelly's heroin addiction, which was a pretty severe thing. I'm not going to get into all the details of that here, but just know this guy went through a lot before eventually getting clean. Smelly was first introduced to heroin by a guy who the band has decided to call Raymond in their book. They don't say his actual name, but the guy is a violent rapist. Smelly hangs out with him often enough to be considered a friend, or at least acquaintance. The kid, DJ, who came back with them, begins doing heroin after seeing Smelly do it. Eventually, DJ will resort to stealing from his friends, which is obviously a problem. They take him out to a secluded area where they snap two of his fingers, beat him, and leave him for dead. Don't worry. He eventually makes it back to town and survives the beating, but after that, he's no longer welcome. With Casillas gone, they are once again looking for a second guitarist. They find one in Steve Kidwiller. Kidwiller is a friend of Eric Melvin's who he met through another friend he knew from working the warehouse of Fred Siegel's. Kidwiller had about three weeks to learn S&M Airlines before the band started recording it. In 1989, they released their second studio album, S&M Airlines, on Epitaph. Fat Mike has said that to him, this is the first real NoFX album as they were finding their sound on this one. Being recorded by Brett Gerwitz, they bring in Greg Graffin of Bad Religion to record some vocal harmonies. The big song on this album shares a name with it, S&M Airlines. They shoot a video for this song with Gore Verbinski directing. Verbinski is a little-known guitar player at the time for a band called Little Kings. He's better known today, though, as the director of films such as Rango, The Ring, and the Pirates of the Caribbean series. The video has shots of the band on a tarmac with the camera flying over them. This is done by having the camera taped to some PVC pipe and driving a truck at the band with it at top speed on the tarmac. You'll also see the band jumping around a lot, except for Kidwiller. This is because he had dislocated his knee while playing at the anti-club when he fell on bottles and pint glasses. Clips from that show are present in the video. Despite the great song and effort put into the video, it never gets played on MTV and doesn't get much radio play, if any. The album does, however, sell 2,500 copies in the first year, and they start seeing more people coming to their shows. With the release of their second album, they decide to go touring. Now, keep in mind, the issues with DJ being kicked out of their circle of friends hasn't happened yet, so he's going on tour with them as a roadie. He and Smelly are so obnoxious, they get nicknamed the Moron Brothers by Eric Melvin. This is a misquote from Melvin, who is trying to quote a Eugene Levy line in Splash, where he refers to two characters as the Moron Twins. These two are ridiculous. They have a running competition to see who can sleep with more girls the entire time, which sounds about right for guys their age, but they also like to play pranks. 
Not fun pranks, but disgusting ones, such as butterballs, where you wipe sweaty fingers on someone's nose and make them guess butt or balls. There was also pressed ham, where you attempt to put your butthole on someone's nose as they sleep. And who could forget that classic, butt trumpet, where you use a hose to put water up your butt and then unload all that water on an unsuspecting victim. Yeah. Gross. The year 1990 gives us the founding of Fat Records, Fat Mike's record label. You'd think no effects would be on this label right away, but they actually stay with Epitaph for a while. Supposedly, Gurwitz was pissed at Fat Mike for starting this label, but he has said he doesn't recall any animosity. In 1991, Steve Kidwiller quits the band. He wasn't seeing much of a future for NoFX and didn't want to continue touring in a van, sleeping in squats, and maybe bringing in $2,500 for a tour. He just wasn't able to afford the cost of living off of what he was making in NoFX. Despite Fat Mike begging him to stay and promising he'd make more money, Kidwiller said no. He went on to start a rock and roll band with a friend of his who was rumored to be a guitar tech for Guns N' Roses, but actually just worked for a company that rented audio gear to bigger bands. He ended up playing in a country punk band called Speed Buggy for a while, and the last I could find, he was a tattoo artist and doing construction work on the side. If only he had known what was about to happen. About three months later, Nirvana's Nevermind came out, and the music world exploded. People started looking for Nirvana's punk influences, and many of them stumbled across NoFX. Kidwiller's last album with NoFX, Ribbed, also came out that year. A couple songs to mention on this album that tie with our story are Malachi Crunch, which was inspired by a kid who Kidwiller and Melvin had invited to a party after a show. The kid showed up, hit on the wrong girl, and was chased down the street and beaten to death by some skinheads. On a lighter note, the song Moron Brothers refers to Smelly and DJ and all of the dumb things they did on tour together. The first line of the song refers to Smelly once tattooing the words tits and booze on his toes. Only he wrote the Z in booze backwards, making it look like an S, so it read tits and booze instead. When they return from that last European tour with Kidwiller, Smelly and DJ get an apartment together with some friends. Smelly is dating Jennifer Lynch from L7 at the time, but still parties and hooks up with none other than an unknown at the time, Courtney Love, who also lives in the same apartment building. Fun fact, Courtney Love once told Smelly that he was the worst junkie she had ever known. Smelly would get out of this place and move into another apartment, 
well, the closet of one, where other junkies lived. The toilet of this place was backed up, so the logical thing they did was shit and piss in the bathtub and just wash it down. It is here that Smelly gets Hepatitis C, giving us the title of their book, The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. Okay, so Kid Wheeler is out at this point, and they are needing another replacement. El Jefe, real name Aaron Abeta, on lead guitar, but also trumpet. Now, Jefe got his first guitar as a teenager on a trip to Mexico with his family. He dropped out of high school just before graduating and had been told by his music teacher that he would never make it. Joke's on him. He played in a band called Crystal Sphere for a while with Mark Curry until Curry got a solo deal from Virgin Records. With Crystal Sphere finished, he gets invited by Smelly to audition for No Effects. He listened to their ribbed album and thought it was terrible, but decided to audition anyway. The audition is not what most band auditions are like. Fat Mike had him play on an electric guitar that was unplugged with no band. This might sound odd, but if you think about it, that leaves no room for you to mess up. You can't hide sloppy playing behind distortion or the rest of the band. And Hefe was a graduate at this point of the Berklee College of Music. Fat Mike offered him the part after the audition, but there was one issue. Fat Mike was dating someone named Aaron at the time and didn't want a member of the band called Aaron, so they decided to give him a Mexican-sounding name. They came up with El Jefe, spelled with an H because supposedly neither of them realized at the time that the H sound in Spanish is made with a J. Now, Jefe didn't really consider himself a punk, didn't know much about punk, and didn't listen to punk. To remedy this, they would play punk music for him in the van on the way to gigs. The only band they played for him that he somewhat enjoyed was The Descendants. Hefe started touring with both NoFX and Mark Curry back and forth until it became too much to juggle. Mark Curry had him as a hired performer who could easily be replaced and he wouldn't own anything. On the other hand, NoFX offered him more money and a quarter share of everything. The choice seems pretty clear here and he went with NoFX. 1992 came with a number of things happening. They release their Longest Line EP. While on tour, they make $10,000 in one night and finish the tour with each of them bringing in about $10,000 apiece. And biggest of all, Fat Mike gives Smelly an ultimatum. Smelly's heroin addiction had gotten bad, and Fat Mike told him he either give up heroin or he's out of the band. Smelly agreed to give up heroin. He handed Fat Mike needles and a balloon of heroin he had. He didn't tell him that he kept a second balloon that he would use over the next few days. He stayed at Fat Mike's place so Fat Mike could keep an eye on him, but never knew about the second balloon. He then started looking for rehabs. Turns out rehab wasn't easy to find. He'd get turned away for either a lack of room for him or his own lack of insurance. 1992 also saw the release of their next album, White Trash, Two Hebes, and a Bean in November. While recording this album, Smelly mentions to Brett Gerowitz that he's trying to get clean. Gerowitz, having struggled with heroin before, starts making calls to help out. He gets him in contact with a guy named Buddy Arnold. Arnold was a jazz musician who had struggled with addiction and later founded the Musician's Assistance Program. Arnold contacted Smelly and lets him know he got him into a rehab facility. This is after Smelly has finished his parts for the album, and he's off to the facility known as The Ranch. While in rehab, Smelly cuts off his dreads, which he says he kept in a bag and still has somewhere. He goes from a scrawny 127 pounds to a healthy 165 pounds and is unrecognized by most of his friends and family when he returns. 
He then joins Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Challenges present themselves almost immediately as Fat Mike shows up to their first practice after his return with beers. As I said before, they also released their new album, White Trash, Two Hebes, and a Bean this year, which, according to Ian Winwood's book, Smash, was originally to be called White Trash, Two Kikes, and a Spick, but was changed after complaints from a family member. A few songs off this album to mention, we have Bob, which was partially inspired by their friend Bob Lush, who was a junkie that was dating a hooker who would turn tricks so they could afford drugs. He drank to the point he had liver damage, and once while fighting with his girlfriend, she threw him over a weight bench and his liver blew. He spent 15 years getting loaded, 15 years till his liver exploded. Now it's Bob gonna do now that he can't drink. The doctor said, what you Now, like I said, it was partially inspired by Bob Lush, mostly from the story of his liver exploding, but most of it was made up. Also on this album, we have Johnny Appleseed, which has two origin stories that I found. In Smash, it's stated that it was about the perception of race. However, in No Effects' autobiography, they state it's really about Smelly trying to pick up chicks on tour. The last song I want to bring up from this album, and just because I think it's kind of funny, is Straight Edge, which is a minor threat cover done in a jazz style where El Jefe makes the trumpet sounds at the end with his mouth instead of actually playing it. In May of the following year, No Effects is witness to the Patriot Hall riot in downtown L.A. They'd been playing with the Vandals and Pennywise and were backstage when it broke out. A couple highlights of their accounts of events. They first saw things were serious when they saw the head of security had been stabbed. Warren Fitzgerald, guitarist for the Vandals, started doing a football coach impression telling everyone what to do before finally pulling his dick out, flopping it on the table, punching it several times, and then running out of the room. Once outside, Smelly saw that his truck was being used as cover for a police officer. He then noticed two kids pushing a dumpster towards his truck like a ram. Smelly intervened by punching one of the kids to the ground, causing the others to scatter. He then proceeded to remove the officer's cover by moving his truck. January of 1994, NoFX ventures on their first Japan tour. This would be different from their European tours for sure. 
They traveled by subway and slept on floors, once even spending the night at an abandoned Yakuza safe house, which was freezing. They were told that if anyone showed up, they needed to run. That wasn't their only cross with Yakuza on that tour. Once, while everyone was at a bar, Smelly decided to step out for some air and some peace and quiet. He leaned up against the wall and two muscular guys came up and leaned up against it on either side of him. Taking notice of this, he started walking and they followed up until he went back into the bar. He was told it was because of his tattoos. Only gangsters had tattoos in that area and those men were Yakuza. Later that year, while playing with Fishbone at the Palladium, Fat Mike tore his ACL. He then went on a European tour, causing more damage. He had to go to the hospital when they returned and was given Vicodin for the first time. He fell in love with the drug and started taking them at an alarming rate. This was beginning to bother Smelly, who had worked hard to maintain his sobriety. July of 94 gave us the release of one of NoFX's biggest albums, Punk in Drublick. This album reached number 12 on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart and shot them into success. They started getting offers from major labels at this point, which didn't really interest them as they were doing pretty well on their own. They did agree to take one meeting, though. At the start, the label told them all the great things they could do for them, such as more interviews and getting their videos on MTV, but no effects weren't doing any interviews at that point and didn't want to be on MTV. The major strategy changed from pampering to belittling. They told them they would be second fiddle to offspring if they didn't sign. This pissed the band off so much that they refused to meet with any more majors. It pissed Fat Mike off so much, I found the same story mentioned by him in every book I've read in researching this episode. A few songs to mention off the Punk and Drublick album. First is Leave It Alone. Breathe, ever so soft. We wouldn't want to break the egg as we walk. Never alone, cautious afraid. I hear the voice of reason on the PA. Leave It Alone got some radio play, and MTV contacted NoFX for a video, but were told no. Fat Mike has said they didn't want to be part of that machine. Next, we'll look at Jeff Wears Birkenstocks, written about Jeff Abarta from Epitaph Records. He had started out in 1989, offering to work for free. He was a business major, looking for an internship, and had heard that Bad Religion had their own label. He bought one of their CDs and found the address on the back. He eventually became Epitaph's first full-time employee as of 1991. So, with that backstory, here's NoFX's Jeff Wears Birkenstocks. The final song I want to bring up on the album is one of NoFX's biggest songs ever. Weirdly, it wasn't a single, had no music video to go with it, had no radio play, and doesn't even have a chorus, but has been covered by more bands than I can count. 
Here's linoleum. In 1995, they decided to release their first live album, cleverly titled, I Heard They Suck Live. It was recorded at the Roxy in LA, who wanted to charge the band $1,500 to put the club's name on the album, but they weren't going to pay that. The liner notes of the album has a message aimed at those major labels, stating, We've been doing fine all these years without you, so leave us alone. This is the first NoFX album to reach the Billboard 200. They hit 198, but still it counts. Also, in 95, no effects are set to play Reading, but had to cancel the day before. Ouch. And I mean that literally. You see, they'd been backstage at Pucal Pop Festival in Belgium when Courtney Love went on stage. El Jefe decided to go down and get a better view. His wedding ring got caught on a nail as he dropped down, ripping the skin off of his finger like a banana peel. The EMT told him that he would lose the finger, but the doctor informed him that that wasn't true. Also in 95, Fat Mike starts another side band with Joey Cape, lead singer of Lagwagon. The band is Me First in the Gimme Gimmies. 1996 is another busy year for the band. They release their next album, Heavy Petting Zoo. There are two different album covers depending on which format you get. If you purchase the CD, it shows a man fingering a sheep, but if you buy the LP, it shows a man holding the sheep upside down in a 69 position, and it says Eating Lamb instead of Heavy Petting Zoo. That's a little much, you might say. Well, they apparently thought the same thing in Europe, as a record store in France was shut down for it, and it wasn't allowed to be hung up anywhere in Germany. Despite the wacky cover, this album reached number 63 on the Billboard 200. It includes a song I want to bring up called Drop the World. In it, they say, Dana, I hope she's in a better place. Which is referring to a friend of theirs who was in a van that went off a cliff. She was the only survivor of that crash. Fifteen years later, after seeing NoFX perform, she leaves Fat Mike a message telling him how great it was seeing everyone again. She was then hit and killed by a drunk driver. Here's a clip from that song. In July of that year, we see MTV playing the business game with no effects again. Someone from MTV informs Fat Mike that if he lets them use a no effects music video, then the band No Use for a Name would get more video showings. No Use for a Name or on Fat Records. Fat Mike isn't the type to be extorted and refuses. Suddenly, No Use for a Name's video gets dropped off of MTV's circulation. Who knows if there's really a connection there, but it's pretty odd. A couple other members of the band decide to try their hand at a different kind of business. 
El Jefe opens a nightclub in Eureka. Fat Mike tells him from the start that it's a mistake and he'll only lose money, which he does. Security lets people in for free, and staff are drinking his drinks for free or pocketing the money from other drinks. Once, while suicidal tendencies were playing, they were told that they had to give a percentage of their merch to the nightclub. When Hefe was told, he told them that wasn't the case and it sounded like someone was trying to rip them off. Mike Muir, singer of Suicidal Tendencies, grabbed the manager by the throat and held him against a wall until security came. By the time Hefe's two-year lease was up, he had lost around $150,000. Eric Melvin also bought a business, but instead of a nightclub, he purchased a coffee shop. Unfortunately, hardly anything in this shop was up to code, costing him around $180,000 in updates by the time he finally bailed on the venture. 96 is also the year that NoFX plays their first Warped Tour. They eventually play eight of them, but this is their first. El Jefe, being the prankster that he is, had a lot of free time to goof off. He'd pull pranks with the walkie-talkies, paintball tour vans with Trey Cool of Green Day, shoot bottle rockets into the production building with Brody Dahl, who got caught but never ratted on him, set fire to a hot dog cart with Fletcher from Pennywise, and once in a smoke bomb filled porta potty down the Kansas River with either Lars Fredrickson or Trey Cool. He's not sure anymore. They accomplished this by getting a production guy to use a forklift. This is the same guy who accidentally lifted one with Eric Melvin in it earlier that day. The result was his being fired and also Warp Tour founder Kevin Lyman being fined $10,000. In 1997, they released the album So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. This album gives a return to the fast-paced punk style like in their opening song, It's My Job to Keep Punk Rock Elite. Ninety-seven is also the same year that Smelly founded Moto XXX with the drummer for Strung Out, Jordan Burns, and his friend Kurt Haller. Their first sponsored writer was Brian Deegan, who would go on to found the Metal Militia. In 1998, No Effects is playing a Warp Tour show in Houston. They had to play in the same place where cows would be auctioned off. It sounded terrible, and so what did they do? They threw money to the crowd. That's right. They threw their entire $5,000 guarantee that they had been given. Well, their guarantee was actually $12,000, but they told everyone it was $5,000. And they also only actually threw about $2,500. Either way, they gave back to the crowd on that one. In 1999, they released the single track EP, The Decline. That's an 18-minute song. That makes it the second longest punk rock song with Crass taking the number one spot. 
99 is also the year that Fat Mike tries cocaine for the first time after a Me First and the Gimme Gimme show in Berlin. As the new millennium rolled into 2000, NoFX put out their next album, Pump Up the Volume. This would be their last album released through Epitaph. They would be switching to Fat Records after this. Also in 2000, Fat Mike tries ecstasy for the first time after a show in Australia. That summer, he convinces El Jefe and Eric Melvin to try it with him right before playing a show to a crowd of 10,000 people in London. In 2002, they released the BYO Split Series Volume 3 with Rancid. This is also the year Fat Mike tries to do something about the current president at the time, George W. Bush. He launches PunkVoter.com to increase voter awareness and point out flaws in the Bush administration. The goal was clear. Get Bush out of office in the 2004 election. He didn't want to take donations and instead called in favors to put out a two-album compilation called Rock Against Bush. Nearly every band they approached for this project said yes. Blink-182 and The Vandals said no. Good Charlotte said yes, but they wouldn't do any photo shoots because their manager said it might hurt their image. To promote this, Fat Mike started doing interviews again for the first time in eight years. He wanted interviews to be about Punk Voter and not about no effects. He got a lot of backlash from people telling him to stay out of politics. That didn't stop No Effects, though, from going on tour to promote Punk Voter. And who did they bring along to do speeches at these shows? Jello Biafra, best known as the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. To kick all this off was their next album released in 2003, The War on Errorism. The opening track for this is The Separation of Church and Skate, which would later be added to the Tony Hawk Underground game. Another great song is She's Nubs, which is about Tally Osborne. If you want to find out more on that, Fat Mike has her on his own podcast, Fat Mike's Fat Mike, for episode 3. In April of 2004, NoFX breaks their print silence by appearing on the cover of Alternative Press. Now, in case you've forgotten, the band The Dixie Chicks spoke out against George W. Bush and received a lot of negative criticism for it. They posed nude on the cover of Entertainment Weekly after that with words written on their bodies. No Effects decided to recreate that image with their own naked bodies covered in different words. In February of 2005, they announced their 7-inch of the month club. If you subscribed, you would get a new EP almost every month, up to a total of 12. The album art for these was selected from fan art, and the first 3,000 subscribers received colored vinyl. On March 14, 2006, they released their EP, Never Trust a Hippie, followed on April 18th with the release of their album, Wolves in Wolves Clothing. 
The track, Wolves and Wolves Clothing, is included in EA Sports NHL 07. We are wolves in wolves clothing. We are this planet's kidney stone. In the process of getting past. Metamorphosis from first to last. A system bringing down beyond repairs. A product of three billion millionaires. A hundred million easy marks. We are Maria In 2006, NoFX once again went out on Warp Tour, but this time, Fat Mike was so far into drugs that their shows were beginning to suck. It was bad enough, they had to sit down intervention with him, but it didn't stick for long. They even attempted a punishment reward system for him. If he messed up too much, they'd take his drink from him. If he could play three songs in a row, he could get it back. At one show that year, he and Eric Melvin did coke off the amplifier in front of Smelly. Smelly, being sober now, was rightfully pissed. He was ready to quit and wrote them a letter that he later read to them about how messed up and hurtful it was that they would do that kind of thing in front of him. This led to separate dressing rooms for the band. One would be as it had been, drugs and alcohol, and one would be sober. This way, Smelly would have a place to be. In January of 2007, they played three nights in San Francisco that they recorded. It became their next live album titled They've Actually Gotten Worse Live and was released November 20th of that year. It's full of very goofy and drunk back and forths with the band as they had become known for and they made sure not to play any songs that had been on their last live album. September of 2007, they launched their world tour which then turned into NoFX Backstage Passport. NoFX Backstage Passport was a documentary type show that ended up on Fuse. They'd gotten the idea after they played a show in Iceland where nobody knew who they were and they had a great time. While in Israel, Fat Mike accidentally hit Eric Melvin in the head with his bass, breaking the neck of the guitar and leaving a gash in Melvin's forehead. He had to borrow a bass from the band Useless ID for the rest of the show. Backstage Passport gave Fuse a 96% jump in their ratings. In February of 2009, they reunited with Steve Kidwiller and Dave Casillas for their 25th anniversary shows. Two months later, on April 28th, they released their next album, Coaster, which included My Orphan Year, a song Fat Mike wrote about the loss of both his parents. On November 24, 2009, they released the Koki the Clown EP. Koki the Clown was a persona that Fat Mike made up about a bitter birthday clown who gets out of rehab and takes revenge on his audience by dosing them with various drugs. You can see him in this outfit in the music video for the song Koki the Clown. Okay. 
March 10th, 2010, Fat Mike performs a solo acoustic show as Koki the Clown. He handed out shots of tequila to people in the crowd, went about his show, and after playing the song Drinking Pee, he played them a video showing him pissing in the tequila bottle he was pouring shots from. This stunt got him banned from the venue, which he later said in an interview he'd always wanted to be banned from somewhere. A couple months later in May, NoFX posted a video showing how Fat Mike had actually switched the bottles and had never actually given anyone pee to drink. The original bottle did go missing while he performed though, so who knows? Someone may have swiped it and drank his pee after all. April 21st, 2010, they started their fermented and flailing tour to promote the Coaster album. August 17th, they released The Longest EP, which was a compilation of their work from 1987 up to 2009. November 23rd, they released a split between No Effects and Spitz, which included two new songs from each band. In June of 2011, they go on their Great White North tour and tour Canada. The following year, in June of 2012, they released the single My Stepdad's a Cop and My Stepmom's a Dom. That my stepdad's a cop and my stepmom's a dom. I found a pair of handcuffs. I don't know who they belong. I don't want to know what happens when my parents do something wrong. Oh, my stepdad's a cop and my stepmom's a dom. September 11th of 2012, they released their next album, Self Entitled. February 19th of 2013, they released their 30th anniversary LP box set. November of 2014, they tour Australia again after touring it with Bad Religion back in 2009. And in the summer of 2015, they toured the U.S. for the 25th anniversary of Fat Records. Supporting acts included Lagwagon, Me First in the Gimme Gimmies, Strung Out, Propagandi, Swingin' Utters, Bracket, Toy Guitar, The Flatliners, Masked Intruder, and Bad Cop, Bad Cop. On April 16, 2016, they released their autobiography, The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. For this book, each member was interviewed and didn't talk to one another or know what was said until the book was ready to be printed. They said it was to be as honest as possible. No fluff or finger-banging, as Smelly puts it. They do not disappoint with this book. October 7th of that year, they released their next album, First Ditch Effort. It was released the same day as Green Day's Revolution Radio and Some 41's 13 Voices. Fat Mike said it was uncool of Green Day to jump on their release date in an interview with All Schools, but wasn't aware about Sum 41 also releasing on that date until that interview. The album kicks off with the song Six Years on Dope, which is about Smelly's struggles with hard drugs. The album also includes guest musicians such as Fletcher from Pennywise joining for I'm a Transvestite.
It also includes the track Oxymoronic, which is a comment about doctors selling drugs to make money. March of 2018, they released the single There's No Too Soon If Time Is Relative, which was released as a tribute to Stephen Hawking, but had actually been written before his death. When I saw him on TV, I thought he looked crazy, then my friend told me that he's just really lazy, so lazy he could only write a brief history of time. He may be smart, but to me he's just a creepy narcoleptic mime. Two months later, they hit some major controversy. While playing in Vegas on a major tour, Eric Melvin says, I guess you only get shot in Vegas if you're in a country band. Fat Mike then responds, You know, that sucked, but at least they were country fans and not punk rock fans. This was only seven months after the mass shooting in Vegas in which Stephen Paddock opened fire on a crowd at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. He fired over a thousand rounds, killing 60 people and wounding at least 413 more. Sponsors almost immediately started pulling off the tour until no effects dropped off. The Descendants stepped in to take their spot for part of the tour. A boycott was then called on no effects and nearly all of their shows in the U.S. were canceled. Luckily for the band, Europe would still have them. They regret what they said and Fat Mike says he was trying to help Melvin out of what he had said but then just ended up making it worse. February of 2019, they do a new run of the 7 Inch of the Month Club, and on August 16th, 2019, they release the single Fish in a Gun Barrel, which is in response to mass shootings, with proceeds going to Mom's Demand Action. Does anyone know how loaded he was when he unloaded his gun? Does anyone know how loaded he was when the slaughter had begun? February 26 of 2021, they released their next album titled Single Album. It was originally set to be a double album, but was pared down to a single album instead. This includes the track Linoleum. It was written after Fat Mike stayed up one night to 4am watching all the covers of Linoleum on YouTube. There's also a quick mention in the song of Tony Sly, singer of No Use for a Name, whose last song was Linoleum before he died after mixing booze and drugs. Alright, that's it. No Effects is one of those bands that can spark a fight almost immediately. 
They have diehard fans and people who absolutely can't stand them or anyone who listens to them. To me personally, they're good fun to listen to. Now, this episode took a while to get out for a number of reasons, but a big one is that there was actually a lot of information on them to be found. Now, most of that information was pretty redundant, but I combed through it all the same. The best I found that I highly recommend checking out is their autobiography, though. There was a lot from that book that didn't make it into this episode, such as the various wives, the struggles Smelly went through getting and staying sober, punk gangs in the 80s, and so on. So, if you're a fan of this band or just want a good punk rock story that doesn't hold back, check out their book, The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and there's a strong chance you'll get nauseous at some point. I always give a thanks to you punk rockers listening to the show, but I really want to emphasize it this time. This episode took me way too long to get out there, and yet I kept seeing the downloads go up, which tells me some of you are out there spreading the word. Please keep that up, and don't forget to leave a 5-star review if you haven't already. It helps others find the show in their searches. Other ways to support the show financially include joining the Patreon, where you can get updates on the show as it goes along, and early access to episodes as soon as they're finished being edited. There's also some merch that gets sent out with certain tiers. If you don't want to make a monthly commitment, but do still want to donate, there's a Ko-fi account set up for the show now too, which lets you do a one-time donation. And there is always the Tee Public store where you can buy merch with the show's logo on it. I've not run into anyone who recognizes the logo for the show yet when I wear my merch, but it has sparked some conversations about punk rock with my UPS driver and the guy working at the gas station down the street, so that's cool. Links to all of that are in the show notes and also on the website at letstalkpunk.com. An update on the website, I've been getting a few bands contacting me on the Facebook page. Yes, I do check the Facebook page. And one got me thinking about supporting lesser-known and unsigned bands, so I've added a page to the website for videos submitted by punk bands. If you've got a punk band and have made a video that you'd like to put on the site for a little extra promotion, email it to me at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I'd still happily take stories, photos, and artwork to add to the site as well if you want to send those in. Again, the email is letstalkpunkrock, all one word, at gmail.com. Another big thank you to Granddaddy Long Greg for making the show's logo. I've heard some ideas from him for the next design, so hopefully we'll be seeing that sooner than later. This is a one-man operation here though, so bear with me when there's a gap in episodes. Most of my nights are spent researching, scripting, recording, and editing the show, so every little bit of encouragement helps. If you happen to notice that I got anything wrong in this episode, please don't hesitate to tell me at the email listed below, letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I'm also still taking suggestions for next season if there's a band you want me to cover. You can also follow me on Twitter at Let's Talk Punk. That's Let's underscore Talk underscore Punk. There's also the Facebook page and the website, Let's Talk And now for the last part of the show. Hints to our next episode. This band formed in 87 in Berkeley, California. They are one of the first bands to fuse punk rock with ska and they only lasted for about two years before breaking up, with members going on to form a much larger punk band. Think you know who it is? Let me know on social media. Alright, that's it. I'll catch you on the flip side.